let us continue with our analysis, our Tantric Yoga, Agama Yoga style analysis of this fundamental text, Yoga Sutra Padanda. And we are in the middle, towards the end actually, of the analysis of the third chapter, the most spectacular chapter of the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, which speaks about the various paranormal powers of the mind, which are not the main thing in the yoga practice, but still are presented as collateral accomplishments and for their spectacular nature. So the so-called Vibhutipada, the chapter on the paranormal abilities of the mind. As most of you know, and some of you will hear now for the first time, in this chapter, Patanjali speaks about the process of Samyama, which means like a very, 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 very deep concentration. It's an absorption, it's a meditation, it's a Samadhi, it's a complete process. It's called Samyama. In a simplified language, again, it will mean like focusing so much that you become one with the subject of your concentration, focusing so much that you get absorbed completely and there is no more you, no more object of meditation, but just one, a unit. You become what you think of, what you focus upon. So this Samyama, Patanjali has described until now in the 41 previous sutras, lots and lots of such Samyamas, Samyama on one thing or another, some things very clear and very concrete, some things very uh, mental, very abstract, very conceptual and thus difficult, thus from which there result uh, amazing capabilities, amazing results. And he continues, he still has to add some to this list. Our last sutra, 41, was the famous sutra with the Samyama for the attainment of the state of levitation, becoming light as cotton and flying, rising in the air. The number 42 sutra speaks suddenly about something much, much more subtle and much more vast. He simply says something as follows. In the state of Mahavideha, where action occurs outside the limits of the physical body, the covering of light is destroyed. Here he does not mention directly Samyama, but there must be a Samyama. Basically, first of all, Patanjali is advising us to focus on something. So this something is precisely the state of Mahavideha, and which is characterized by him by the few words saying where action occurs outside the limits of the physical body. Well, you should know, first of all, that the word Mahavideha in Sanskrit, made of two words, Mahavideha, the great Videha, refers to a special city which is called in common parlance in Western language the mental projection, and means the great or universal state of mind in which the mind functions without the physical body, separated, outside the physical body. And there exist even two stages of this Mahavideha, which is alluded here. The imaginary one, the Kalpita, like the imaginary one where you kind of make it up. I'm going to comment in a second what Patanjali, where he wants to go. 
and the actual projection, the later is of course attained by means of the former, like first you have to go through the beginner stage and then in the advanced stage. The covering of light, which is mentioned, first clarifying the terms, is a metaphor both for Maya, illusion, because it's like everything is made of light, everything is a covering of light, and this light is a dream, is an illusion, and at the same time for the illusory bodies or koshas, the vehicles, the subtle bodies of the human being, and it is therefore said by, the, by this samyama, the yogin can like move freely with the mind, wherever that leads, one of the most spectacular applications was considered to be entering into other bodies. That is, of course, a very, very simplified enunciation of a very complex process. Here, Patanjali therefore says, by performing samyama on that state where the mind is working without the body. This is a difficult concentration. It's not that you focus on something concrete, because you focus on a concept, you focus on an image, on a mental image, how would it be for my consciousness and mind to function outside of the body? What would I be if I would not be the body? My mind free of the body, where does it go? What does it do? How does it feel? And therefore, here is a samyama on a condition, simply trying to imagine what is to be free of the body. This, of course, leads to a condition called Mahavideha, which in Western language we call, again, mental projection, and which is the next step, and actually much superior to the astral projection. Most people, when they talk about experience out of the body, they actually talk about what in parapsychology, or in occult science, would be called the astral projection, the out-of-body experience, which is equal to lucid dreaming as well. And this experience is an experience in which the physical and etheric body are separated from the rest. The physical and etherical body are inert in bed or wherever they are left. And the astral body, together with the other higher bodies, stacked. So, the astral body, the mental body, the causal body, are separately displacing, moving. They can separate from the first two. This astral projection is a very, very interesting experience. It is one of the very coveted paranormal accomplishments. There are lots and lots of things to say about it. This is something which, for example, we analyze practically, both in various yoga courses, and as well when we are speaking about it in separate workshops, like in our parapsychology one type of workshop. And therefore, uh, anyhow, I'm not insisting on the astral projection because it's a very well-defined process, but the astral projection has its limitations, such as astral projection can happen or cannot happen in some environments in, at some levels, one cannot displace with infinite speed and at any at all lengths, and uh, there are anecdotal stories about the astral projection presenting even some dangers. Uh, wrong astral projection can have the nature of a nightmare, and that simply means that you astrally project it in an infernal astral plane, like an, in, in an inferno, in a hell, 
and there you can have a hellish experience, the most close such experience to your understanding being, of course, a nightmare. A nightmare is just a simple, involuntary, nightly projection in a rather low universe from where there arise very unpleasant experiences, scary experiences, experiences of pain, of torment, and so on and so forth. That is why the yogis looked the, upon the astral projection a little bit down, like as interesting as astral projection can be, still it has some downsides to it, it even has some dangers to it, and that's why the yogis have looked upon the issue if they could go higher than the astral projection into a level which is even more secure, into a level which is even more perfect than that. And the next level, and unfortunately people who don't understand this tantric structure about the chakras, the five bodies and all the rest, which you learn already in the first month of yoga here, they cannot understand what this is, what means the mind functioning separate from the body. However, in tantric yoga, where everything is like engineeringly clear, this thing is quite clear because it means that you drop the third body, and you go only with the fourth body and up. So it's like slicing the cake one slice higher. So the astral body can stay in bed with the other two bodies, but the mind can move freely. This action doesn't even require a state of trance as intense as the other one, because the astral projection is a very intense trance-like state. The human being is in a form of lucid dreaming, so the human being is in a state, in astral projection, in a state which is like dreaming and yet not dreaming. So it's a state in which, for example, your body, you can't feel it, it's out of perception. And if, for example, you would be in astral projection and somebody would suddenly open the door to your room and touch your body, it could give you an extremely unpleasant and even dangerous jolt to the body, which could produce even heart uh, damage and so on and so forth. And therefore, to make the long story short here, the astral projection being of a lower nature, of a more gross nature, is a state which is more demanding. It's again, it's like a trance. Your breath, eyes, body, mind goes in a special position and it's a kind of a borderline condition of the body. But the mental projection is a state in which if the astral body stays with the etheric body and with the physical body, then the, this division, this split, is at such a higher level that physically it almost has no more import. So the funny thing is that a mental projection can be done, for example, even in a sitting position, while it's much more difficult to do astral projection while you sit when you sit up straight in a vertical position of the spine, because then it's like you'd fall asleep and your body would go like this, it would fall instantaneously if you'd go in an astral projection, or it, it would feel like sleeping, it would paralyze, while in the mental projection, this physical collateral effect would be much, much less perceptible. So the human being would be like in an excellent meditation, a little bit stiff, like in an very deep meditation, ankylosed in a certain way, but not in a trance, not in such a dangerous stretched condition as in the astral projection. One over the other, there are definite advantages to this Mahavideha, it is called by Patanjali, the great mental projection, moving just with the mind. 
And the advantage would be that one, if somebody touches you physically while you do a mental projection, you won't have a heart attack, you won't have a jolt. Yes, you would have an unpleasant surprise like somebody touches you when you are daydreaming and huh, well, where was I? It's like, oh, I was daydreaming. So it's not necessarily pleasant, but it's not very unpleasant either. And more important, it's not dangerous. It's not so demanding in terms of the vital energy and there are a lot of advantages. There is no limit to the mental projection. Your mind can theoretically move to another galaxy and there is no limit to the time which it can spend there, to the speed with which it can get there. There is no limit to the stretch where it can go. While, for example, with the astral projection, there do exist some very clear limitations. And uh, again, the speed is greater, the clarity of the mind is even greater because we look upon things from a higher level. The unfortunate thing is that, of course, there is a price to pay for this and there is, therefore, a downside to it. This downside or price to pay is that it's more difficult to do the mental projection than the astral projection. The astral projection is something which happens even when you dream every night and, therefore, everybody is like tuned, everybody is like honed to astral projection. It's like we do it all the time and therefore it's kind of there, just behind the corner. It's available. While mental projection is a much more rare phenomenon and therefore the training for it is greater. We need to have bigger power of concentration. We need to be more absorbed mentally. You need to have a stronger mental body because some people have a mental body which is nil, which is extremely weak. And therefore, uh, for some people, mental projection is impossible or almost impossible due to the fact of not having a strong mental body, simply. So like there is nobody home at the mental level or almost. And therefore, there is an upside to it. There are so many advantages to the mental projection. And there is the downside to it that this is a more advanced yogic process. And now coming back to our sutra, we understand about what Patanjali speaks technically. For many people, feel free to read many, many commentaries of the Yoga Sutra, because Yoga Sutra being one of the most famous yoga texts has had countless translations and attempts of commentaries. You probably find at least ten if you go in a, a large library or bookshop. And... Uh, and there are many, there are probably more than a hundred such translations and commentaries in the world. And unfortunately you are going to see that this sutra is very unclear for everybody. They don't really understand because Patanjali says in the state, and some people even call it the great disincarnate. Disincarnate which means having no body. Like if you stop being incarnated. Maha, great videha disincarnate. So it's in the, in the state called the great disincarnate where action occurs outside the limits of the body, but that can very well be astral projection actually. So many people think that perhaps Patanjali here speaks about astral projection because he speaks about something which happens out of the body. 
And for some people, it's simply uh, an understanding that Patanjali speaks about some action outside of the body, like some energy action or something like this. And that's why there exist very, very dubious translations of this sutra, simply because of not understanding the technology. In Tantric Yoga, you can understand, first of all, the basic energy things, the bodies and so on, and then things become suddenly more clear. So... Here, Patanjali speaks about this state of mental projection and says in the state of Mahavideha, where action of the mind, of course, occurs outside the limits of the physical body, the covering of light is destroyed. Therefore, by making Samyama on action with the mind outside of the body, one reaches this Mahavideha and then the covering of light, which means Maya, is destroyed. There exists a meaning, as I read to you here, that some people interpret that the covering of the light means the illusory bodies, the koshas. But that interpretation is not entirely correct, because it would say that if you perform some yama on Mahavideha, then your bodies, your koshas, are destroyed. But if your koshas are destroyed, it means you are dying, you are partly expelled from the manifestation. And we, not only that we don't see that, but at the same time there is no interest for the yogis to do that. And therefore, uh, here the correct understanding is that this covering of light means the inferior bodies and the impurities in the inferior bodies, because this text of yoga is written more in a Vedantic style. Patanjali's opinions are rather Vedantic, dry in uh, their approach. And Patanjali is always denying, denying, denying the Prakriti and the inferior levels. That's the trip of this, of those ascetic Vedantic style of yogis, and in the classical yoga of Patanjali as well. And because of this, when he says that the covering of light is destroyed, he means the Maya, the illusory light. He means all these things in the lower bodies which create the illusion of ego, the illusion of a separate existence, the illusion of all these personal inferior things which generate desire, impurities of the mind, kleshas, attachment, therefore, which creates samsara, which creates the different ties that bind us to manifestation. And therefore, basically, he says, if you do samyama on the action of the mind without the body and the other things, this results in mahavideha, siddhi, in the state of Mahavideha, in which the impurities, the Maya, is destroyed to a large extent. That's the meaning of the Samyama. So basically, let's sum it up again in case you didn't get it. The Samyama is, make Samyama, concentrate, visualize, imagine, feel it, be one with it, go into it, be absorbed into it. Samyama, for those of you who know the complete meaning of this word, Samyama on this condition where the mind is acting independent of the body. Therefore, a condition in which your mind is free, as the mind should be, and it moves everywhere. For your inspiration, let us say that a condition in daily life where this happens, and by this one you can see that some people do have an aptitude for this Mahavideha, is daydreaming, as I said earlier. Are you a very daydreaming person? Are you often catching yourself being a million mi- miles away 
and being like completely out of your body. Sometimes it would be like having an attention deficit. I guess in modern American language you would call a kid or a teenager who has that, a person who has, suffers from attention deficit, a sort of syndrome of attention deficit. Like little Walter is an absent-minded kid. Little Walter all the time and he's gone. And the teacher says, Walter, are you careful at what I'm teaching? And Walter was gone in Neverland with his mind. Walter was gone in some other universe. This kind of absent-minded person who flips very easily. A second, and the person is not there anymore. Has gone somewhere and is dreaming something. Is being somewhere. Dreaming with the eyes open. Daydreaming. If a person has a lot of that, and some of those drifts become very, very realistic, scary, almost like living in two worlds at the same time, like as soon as I don't focus on this reality, oh, I'm such a dreamer that I'm having like two lives, one here and one not here, and I'm so easily out of here that people are all the time complaining. You are absent-minded. You are, you are thinking about something else. What are you thinking of? You are not present, this and that. That actually is a reminiscence of some previous life aptitude in which the person is actually projecting with the mind. That's a mental projection. It's involuntary. If it, it's, an, it's out of control, therefore, it is of an inferior quality because you might think about very, very stupid things. It's not nothing noble in it. But still, it demonstrates an ease. It demonstrates that the mind of that person separates from the body so easily. The body is here and the mind is God knows where. In a fraction of a second you are on a different continent. You are so absent-minded that if the telephone is ringing or a person is calling you, you don't hear it. Somebody then comes and touches you and say, Walter, <laughs> what? Oh, sorry, I was thinking about something. I was. This is a sort of mental projection. Remember that this is exactly what Albert Einstein used. Albert Einstein, in his famous concept of Gedanken experiment, of thought experiment, of mind experiment, Albert Einstein suggested that you can do some experiments just by imagining how it is. In the moment when Albert Einstein did, for example, his experiment about the nature of gravity, that gravity bends light, he was thinking about the comparison between inertial mass and gravitational mass, that an object which has a mass is pulled gravitationally and thus it exerts a force, a force according to gravitation. But the same thing is happening if you are in the void where there would be zero gravitation and you just accelerate an object according to the law of physics. If you constantly accelerate an object like faster, 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 faster and faster and forever faster like this, at least for a period of time, in that time the object is pushing back because it's exactly like if you push, it is kind of pushed back against what pushes it. And this push feels like a gravity. For example, if you would be out in the cosmos in a space capsule where you would be completely stationary, you would float in ponderability. You would float and there would be no weight, as you see so beautifully in all those satellite space shuttle images from space stations where people float in imponderability, and which is a pretty strange condition, pretty uncomfortable condition. 
But for example, if you start the engines of the rocket, and the rocket starts pushing, then you fall against the back of the rocket, and it suddenly feels that you have weight, that you are pressing on the bottom of your rocket, because the rocket is actually accelerating and pushing against you. So according to the theory of relativity, acceleration is like mass. It feels like weight, because it pushes you, and if you would be in the cosmos, blindfolded, in a rocket, in a closed compartment, you wouldn't know if what attracts you is gravitation or acceleration. You can't make any difference between those. Fact is that a certain force pushes you towards the floor of your shuttle, towards the floor of your room. But you don't know if it accelerates or if it's a gravitational mass under which attracts you. In this experiment, in which Albert Einstein realized that acceleration and gravitation have the same effect, he then imagined what would happen if you would be in an accelerating capsule in a room which accelerates and you are pressed against the floor and what is happening if a beam of light enters through a lateral wall. You make a hole in one of the walls and you shoot a beam of light and then what is happening is that you accelerate, the light comes in and as it comes in you keep accelerating. So the light will not hit the opposite wall exactly in the same place, but lower, because in the meantime you accelerated and the floor went up. So when you look, when you are inside, if there is gravitation, you see that the light comes in here and goes like this. So actually the light curves because of gravitation. It results that if there is a force like gravitation, even light will be curved by it. All these Albert Einstein did imagining. He imagined this condition. He simply stayed there and said, what if I would be in a box, pushed from behind, accelerated, I would feel like there is gravitation, light comes in. It's all a Mahavideha. Albert Einstein had a little bit of Mahavideha Siddhi. He could project his mind in all kinds of crazy places and situations, and thus he could get knowledge. Of course, he could have gotten many other things from it, but he never really trained, although some of his conclusions were pretty crazy. For example, Albert Einstein did not say that probably alien civilizations have, have, have ever visited the earth. Albert Einstein has a quote in which he says, the alien civilizations exist, they have interacted with this planet ever since 40,000 years ago, and they have a secret base on the dark side of the moon, on the opposite side of the moon. A scientist like Albert Einstein, he didn't say, my personal opinion is that probably there must exist some alien intelligence, and Albert Einstein said it as a fact, which a, a scientist of that size would not do unless he had a certain form of certitude. Albert Einstein didn't beat around the bush. He said not only that there exist alien civilizations, but they fiddle with humanity and they have interacted with us since 40,000 years. He gave an exact measure of time, not like since old days. He said since 40,000 years, alien civilizations interact with human beings and they have a base on the dark side of the moon. Where would he get this? Either he was not scientific, either he was just phantasmagoric, which is any time possible, we can say the old man got senile, or he was having a, such a strong intuition <clears throat> that it was like a sort of remote viewing, it was like a sort of clairvoyance. 
This is Mahavideha. That his mind, Albert Einstein was such a dreamer, Albert Einstein said imagination is more important than willpower. But what he meant by imagination, he didn't mean the wild phantasmagoric imagination from Svadhisthana. Although Albert Einstein was a Pisces, a fish, astrologically, so he definitely had a lot of Svadhisthana and a lot of Svadhisthanistic imagination as well. But he had a strong Vishuddha and a strong Ajna chakra especially, and therefore when he spoke about imagination, he actually meant Mahavideha. He simply meant that some people have a mind which instantaneously as they relax, think of something, they flip suddenly, and they are somewhere. And for some people that sounds unreal, but Albert Einstein discovered that you can know the universe through that, you can understand the reality through that. And therefore, Albert Einstein confirmed when he says imagination is more important than intelligence and willpower, because it's like if you imagine right, you see, your mind's eye can see what results from that. And therefore, this is nothing else but an expression of Mahavideha. This is what Patanjali says through Mahavideha. Patanjali says if you, if you get accustomed that your mind should work without the body, outside of the body, completely outside of any bodily conditioning, like daydreaming, like flipping completely, you are going to develop Mahavideha. And therefore, I wrote here for in my commentary that there are two stages to Mahavideha. And if you understand this one, and you work on Ajna Chakra, and you do this Samyama, you are going to be able to get as far as you want with this one. But it's easy, it's under your nose, and yet not so many people have the courage or the perseverance to go there. There are two stages to Mahavideha. The imaginary one, Kalpita, it's like you make it up, which is indeed imagination, and the actual projection. And the latter is attained by means of the former, which means fake it till you make it. It's as simple as that. Imagine until it becomes reality. So basically this says, if you don't travel with your mind, start making it up. Start imagining all kind of imaginary travels with your mind. The more you can sit, and I am imagining, you know what, I would like to imagine a real down-to-earth one. Usually it's much more thrilling than that. But I would like to imagine that I fly around this island. I'm going on the circumference of Kopangan, down to Tongsala, from Tongsala to Hatrin, from Hatrin to Hoktong Naipan, from Tong Naipan to Koma, and from Koma back here to Ananda. And therefore I'm making, I'm going around the island, and I'm imagining it. Imagine that I'm having a small airplane or something, some flying kite of some sort, and I'm flying and I'm seeing the coast. And I'm flying and flying and now I'm in Tongsala and now I've turned left and I'm going to Bantai and then to Hatrin and so on, and I'm flying. This is imagination. But if you do it for five years, it's not imagination anymore. If you do it one hour every day for five years, it becomes reality. Only that people don't see it coming. People don't have the perseverance. They think it's useless. It's so thin that, but Patanjali says, become accustomed to go without your body. Make your mind work independently from your body. Leave your body, sit on a chair, and you with your mind just go. Go, go, go. 
If you are a person who is absent-minded and has a lot of these daydreaming things, it's good. You already have the ability developed. That ability is because you are spiritually developed. You did something in a previous life, meditation, concentration, something, which today amounted to this. Not everybody has such a rich imagination. Maybe you think that everybody is daydreaming. Not really. Some people are so material, so gross, that they cannot go anywhere outside of their body. They are always bound to their body. And for them, imagination is more like a thick fantasy. They can have erotic phantasms, but it's still with the body. It's sensory. It's here. It's not completely out. Like my body is dead. I don't even feel my body. I even forgot that I had a body. This is what absent-minded people doing daydreaming do. They simply pop. And they are out. They are completely absent. And this absence is in a certain way a good sign. It shows your mind has grown so mature and so powerful that it can move without the body. The, it can, it is separate. The downside is that of course if you are absent-minded you have lots of problems in the daily life so you should be able to focus because the cause, the actual cause of this is that this is yin. It is happening only yin. It is happening without your control. It's a phenomenon which happens randomly, chaotically, when it wants, not when you want. So now starts the long process in which you are going to say, okay, if I can daydream like an idiot all day long and thus have lots of troubles, all my life I had lots of trouble because of daydreaming and flipping like this, at least now let's make it deliberately. Let's have at least half an hour a day where I daydream what I want and where I want, not by it. Let me take control. Well, you are going to see that taking control is easier said than done, because if on the level of your mental body, and Vigyana Mayakosha, if you are yin, then you will have to solarize your mental body. And solarizing your mental body can be done precisely with visualization, conceptual meditation, pranayama, but that's very indirect, the use of colors, mantras, and all kinds of other processes which touch the third body and the fourth body. This is the secret unspoken, and I challenge you, and you'll see you will not find this explanation in any commentary ever published on the Yoga Sutra, because not having the tantric angle to it, people don't understand the technicalities. When people speak about things from the third body, the fourth body, this is like something psychological or something mental. And as you know, psychology and the mind is a labyrinth. Freud and Jung and all the people who spoke about mind and psyche, they still consider it a labyrinth. It's like there is no structure. It's a chaos. Well, you have traumas and you have thoughts and you have archetypes and you have things popping up and you have subconscious and you have semi-conscious and you have this and you have that and it's like nobody makes order. How are you going from one emotion to another emotion? It's like all inside there is a chaos. It's an amorphous mass of things. But in yoga, in the moment when you start seeing the bodies and the energies and the chakras and everything, then you start understanding, wait a second. This is about the fourth body thing. It is about becoming more solar. And it is this phenomenon like of daydreaming, of projection. And thus, 
in any one of you who gets inspired by this can say, hey, I can do this. If I want, I can do this. I can practice this thing. And therefore, this Samyama has been explicitated here for you specially. And I'm not saying it's easy, but it is definitely much more easy now for you to at least understand what he's talking about and where to start from. Patanjali says, make Samyama on acting outside the body. Learn to do, to flip. Allow yourself to flip and daydream, but do it deliberately and in a controlled way and start giving yourselves targets. Don't just flip wherever, but start taking control over this function. Do not repress it, because it's the direction of evolution. The direction of evolution is not that you will become more and more bodily, because your body is a perishable nature. In 50 years or in 100 years, your body will be reduced to ashes. So, it's not about this. It's obvious that we go more and more towards the astral, mental, causal, and the supreme self. And therefore, the direction of evolution is obviously towards those. That is why, learn to live with the mind. Learn to live in the mind. Because the mind is a superior unit of your being, and it is higher, it is, evolutionarily speaking, higher. And remember that this Mahavideha starts with imaginary ones. This is the major function of imagination, which is overlooked in most yoga branches and most forms of spirituality. Imagination for most people is an obstacle. But Patanjali says, if you start deliberately doing Mahavideha, floating without your body, doing action indifferent of the body, out of the body, and in the beginning you do it even imaginary, it will become real eventually. You build up the real thing, but by first imagining it, as I said before. And this is this difficult Samyama, this very promising Samyama. The Mahavideha is the state of ultimate knowledge. Remember that Videha has the same root with the word Vidya, which means knowledge. So Mahavideha means the great knowledge. It means whatever you want to know, you can know it in the state of Mahavideha. Albert Einstein did other examples of Mahavideha. He discovered the theory of relativity, the full one, by imagining, imagining what would it be to fly on the tip of a light beam, to be the first particle from a light beam, which flies with 300,000 kilometers per second. So imagine that you are posted in the first photon, in the first particle on a light beam, somebody turns on a laser, and you are right in the tip of it, as it goes with an enormous speed all the way into the infinite. And you are seated on a chair, strapped with your seatbelt on, in the front seat there, and you are running forward with 300,000 kilometers per second. What do you see? Try, and you will see it's very, very difficult. Then you will understand why there are not many people who understand what Albert Einstein said. Albert Einstein himself, perhaps in an act of scientific arrogance, but not really, said that at the time when he emanated the theory of relativity and exposed it, set it forth, he claimed that there were not more than ten people on earth who understood what he really wanted to say with this. Until today, many of you here in this hall, if tomorrow you start studying the theory of relativity, you will not understand it. Not really. You will understand the formalism, the formulas, 
if you go a little bit into the mathematics, but what really is the feeling of it, like understanding it, so you are able to draw conclusions, to see the logics of it, not so much. Very, very few people even today can understand the theory of relativity because it is written from a state of consciousness which is higher and it's not easy to understand it physically. That is why the theory of relativity still remains very, very mysterious and it's not only the only possible explanation and truth as well, but it's one angle to look upon things. And that is why Mahavideha brings knowledge. To Albert Einstein, it, bre it brought the understanding of the phenomenon of relativity, both generalized and particular, and it brought him, after all, a Nobel Prize in physics, although he never took the Nobel Prize for the relativity, by the way. He took it for the explanation of the photoelectric phenomenon, actually. So, something which was completely outside of his main field of action. A completely collateral thing which he did brought him the Nobel Prize in physics. And therefore, coming back to our story, remember that Mahavideha is an instrument of knowledge. If your mind can go anywhere, your mind can know anything, everything. And thus, Mahavideha becomes the instrument of complete knowledge, and the one who has complete knowledge is automatically eliminating ignorance. That is why Patanjali says, if you develop Mahavideha, the veil of light, the covering of light, the thing which covers the light, which dulls the light, will be destroyed, which means the impurities in your mind, in your astral body and the other bodies of light are actually destroyed, which means your knowledge shines forth, shines through. This is the understanding of this difficult shloka where many commentators have stumbled in finding the explanation. Number 43 is another example where the tantric tradition can help you understand what on earth are they talking about. Listen to the number 43. Patanjali says, by doing samyama on the gross, basic, subtle, correlative and purposive states of the elements, which are called the Buddhas, the five elements, earth, water, fire and so on, mastery over them is obtained. This is such a strange thing. We have to make samyama on different states of the elements. He tells us that the elements, the five elements, exist in different states. One of the states is the gross, okay? The gross state of the elements. What is the gross state of earth? Well, most probably the physical earth. The gross state of the earth. What is the gross state of water? The liquid state of matter, water itself as a liquid thing, would be the most gross manifestation of the water element, philosophically. What is the gross state of fire? Fire itself, if you like, the fire, the plasma in the fire, the flames, are the gross state, the most gross state of fire, because you can't find something more evident, more gross, more material than that. And therefore, Patanjali implies that each element and the elements are very strange things, earth, water, fire, air, and ether, they are philosophical categories, because the water doesn't mean only H2O, two hydrogens and one oxygen. Water 
means everything which is liquid. Your tears are water, your blood is water, your lymph is water, water is water, oil is water, every liquid thing in this universe is water. Even quicksilver has some of the frequency of water because it's liquid. Quicksilver is a metal which is liquid and therefore it, it, it falls under the water element a lot. And therefore, to make the long story short, he tells us that the five elements have five states each, like, and you have to make some yama on those, which means to concentrate. It kind of flabbergasting, what are the five states? There is a so-called gross state, okay, we can conceive a little bit of what that is, which is called stula. In Sanskrit, stula is gross, like stula kriya in Laya Yoga, the first step, the gross preparation. Then basic, svarupa. Svarupa in Sanskrit, rupa means form, and sva, one's own. So svarupa means their very form, their specific form. The what the heck is the specific form of the earth? The svarupa of the earth element. The very form of the earth or of water. It's obviously form. does not mean a form. It means a, like a form of manifestation. But still, it's like, what is the... We lost, he lost us already. Normal people, when they say meditate on the gross, basic, then there comes subtle, sukshma. We had stula, and now we have sukshma, like in Laya Yoga, stula kriya, sukshma kriya. So the subtle, the subtle, what is the subtle manifestation of water or of air? Then there comes a very strange word, correlative is translated by some authors. Many authors use crazy words for this one, anvaya in Sanskrit. It's a real rare, rare word, and it means nothing. Okay, correlative. What's the correlative form of the fire or of the ether or of the... And then purposive, purposive, like purpose, like goal-oriented. It seems to point to some cause and effect thing, which is arthatvatva. Artha means that, it means basically the reality, and vatva, like in tatva, artha vatva, the thatness. The, it's completely crazy. So many people stumble over this a sutra like this because this sounds like a completely crazy samyama. How would you make samyama on the five forms? Let's quote them again. Gross, basic, svarupa, one's form, subtle, correlative, and purposive of the five elements. People don't even understand the five elements well. Like what is water, what is fire, what is air. And now you are supposed to make samyama to really focus thoroughly on the five different forms of those. What on earth are we talking about? And here the answer is very simple for those who did a bit of yoga. And all those of you who have passed our fourth month yoga course already know what he's talking about. He's talking about the sub-levels of the elements. When he speaks about the gross form, that's the physical form of earth, water, and so on. When he speaks about the svarupa, that's the second sub-level, and it is the etheric form of those elements. When he speaks about the subtle one, he speaks about the astral form of those elements. When he speaks about the so-called correlative one, he speaks about the mental form of those elements. 
And when he speaks about the purposive one, he actually speaks about the causal form of those elements. Now suddenly it becomes much more clear. Every element has a manifestation at a level, which means there is earth physically, and that means the solid state of matter, including your bones and everything, they are earth in your body. So it's not only the earth as earth, but everything solid, rigid, is earth. But at the same time there is earth at an astral level. For example, when you dream, you still have a muladhara. You still are related to the earth element. And yet there is nothing solid in your dreams. So that is the subtle, the third level manifestation of the earth. And therefore each element has a manifestation at each level. And basically he says you have to make samyama on all those levels. And therefore, you have to make some yama completely, and then he says, mastery over the elements is thus obtained. Therefore, there are five states of the five elements, namely gross form, etheric essence, subtle form or astral, universal form in Vigyana Maya Kosha, and their causal state in Ananda Maya Kosha. And basically, First, let's look a little bit at the effect before we draw the conclusion about this incredible Samyama. He says, this is how you obtain mastery over the elements. Wait a second. It means you can take them one by one. That means I would like to obtain mastery, whatever the yogis understand through that, let's look at it. Mastery over the fire element. Mastery over the fire element, among others, would mean that fire will never burn you. Just to give an example. It means that you could stay in fire and fire will never burn you. This has been seen and heard many times. There are stories about it in the Bible. There are stories about it in the Old Testament. There are stories about it in the modern Christian mysticism with St. Francis of Assisi who asked to enter in fire, demonstrated you will not be burned or affected by fire. There is even today I've seen a video with an Indian yogi who basically lies down in fire and he's not getting burned, the, the famous fire yogi. And such phenomena of incombustibility, people resisting fire, have been seen and heard lots and lots in various fields. Therefore, to master fire would mean, for example, that if it is cold outside, I can generate as much fire as I want and I can get warm. The Tibetan Tumo is an example of mastery over the fire element. You can stay naked in the middle of snow and produce your own fire. That's already a paranormal level. To be able to have mastery over fire, it means I can start fire at will. You have been told from the first month that the tantric musicians were asked to demonstrate their power over the element through music by playing music in front of a candle and putting it a blaze, popping it into flame without touching it physically. You are, the movie was called Firestarter, a girl who could just look at something and set it ablaze, set it into flames. This thing had actually happened when Miss Helena Petrovna Blavatsky, the woman who founded the Theosophical House, when the priest threw her in the water for baptism at the age of 40 days or something, like an infant, really a baby, and when she was put in cold water for baptism, the clothes of the priest blazed on fire. This woman had such a strong manipura that as a defense reaction of a 40-day-old baby, when she was put in cold water, <coughs> her manipura made like this. And on a few centimeters around, 
everything caught fire. She was a fire starter, that woman. She could put things ablaze just by emanating an energy. So this thing, this phenomenon is not dead other times. So to be, to master the fire element would be able to start fire, to stop fire, to produce the effects of fire, to stop the effects of fire, like to produce heat without fire, to stop fire. Not many people actually control it. It's an extremely difficult thing. It would mean that one chakra should be activated more than 50%. That one chakra should basically be activated 100%. Only a person who reaches 100% arousal of a chakra can say that I fully control this element on all the levels and under all its manifestations. Think, there have been Christian mystics who worked on their heart chakra for 40 years and they perhaps did not reach 100% arousal of the heart chakra. So gigantic a chakra is and so many aspects and sub-aspects there are to it. And therefore, this element that who I can take it to the bottom, try to think, Zen masters for centuries and centuries meditated on Hara. It's the basic Zen meditation, Zen style. And you concentrate all your energy and all your perception and all your attention and all your mind in the Hara. In the Hara, in, you have to breathe Hara, you have to be Hara, you have to feel Hara, you have to think Hara, you have to be centered 100% into... We do this in this school, for example, when we advise people to go on the chakra tapas, where they go on a special tapas, where they work on each element, trying to develop the various aspects of it. Patanjali is telling the secret, and as you can see now, suddenly you can understand. And again, go into various commentaries of the Yoga Sutra, and you will see how flabbergasted the commentators are. They don't really seem to understand what Patanjali talks about. And their commentaries are full of confusing words. Like after you read one page of that commentary, which is supposed to clarify, it's like, what did I get out of this? Not much. Let's read it again. And you read it 15 times over in the next three days. And you still don't get the point. It's like the translator, the commentator, is talking very ambiguously because he or she doesn't in all the worlds. And then, if you activate an element like this, then you have control over it. So any one of you, because this thing, control over the elements, it's one of the big, big things in Indian yoga and Tibetan yoga. Simply describes the further effects of that. We'll have to take a one minute break, two minute break for technical purposes. And then I'll continue for another 15 minutes to reach a little bit more knowledge tonight.